It's the Listen Up Milwaukee podcast. And welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Steve Italiano of the This the Listen Up Milwaukee podcast. And uh, I'd like to thank you for tuning in or listening or downloading or however you're doing this. Um, please remember, if you haven't, please subscribe. Uh, that makes us uh, build some uh, clout to get other people to find us. Uh, so today's guest um, on the Listen Up Milwaukee podcast is an old high school classmate of mine um, who is currently an associate professor at the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Wisconsin. So I'd like everybody to welcome uh, Kathleen Bartson-Culver. Kathleen, Katie, how are you? I'm great, Steve. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you taking the time and doing this for us. So um, why don't you fill us in on your background a little bit first? Um um, I mean, I can, I can read your bio off the website, but it's always <laughs> nice to hear your journey and your words. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I, I really am delighted to be here and, and uh, chat with a, a friend from long ago, a blast from my Dominican high school past, which is more years ago than I would like to admit. Um, so I am uh, sort of a UW-Madison lifer. I have um, all three of my degrees from here. Um, undergraduate, master's, and PhD, um, all in journalism and mass communication. And I now run the Center for Journalism Ethics here at UW, and I serve as the James E. Burgess Chair in Journalism Ethics, which means I'm having a hot time these days. <laughs> lots yeah. and lots of questions out there um, with ethics um, aspects. Uh, I also live in Pittsburgh, just uh, just south of Madison, with uh, my husband Scott, who also grew up in the Milwaukee area, and um, graduated from UW with me. And uh, our oldest son, also a journalism school graduate from Madison, uh, is working as a reporter. And then my son Joe is in business school at UW Milwaukee, and uh, my daughter is a high school junior here in Madison and a devout, uh, volleyball player. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Um, so are, are you, uh, you, you teach a regular class in Madison? I do. I, I teach a number of courses and pretty, um, solid rotation. So I do our, um, our big sort of boot camp course for new majors in the J school. Uh, it covers the basics of journalism, strategic communication, meaning advertising, public relations, integrated marketing. And it's a really interesting course. It's a kind of a beast at six credits. Um, so it asks a lot of work out of the students. Um, but it's been, um, for fully the two decades that's been taught, it's been agnostic about platforms and, and sort of ready to adapt to the latest thing uh, that comes down the pike. So, you know, Facebook didn't exist when the class started and now students use it to, uh, you know, do their uh, social marketing for their final project. Then I also teach um, seminars in ethics and digital media law and ethics. And lately I've been doing a heavy rotation of our law of mass communication course, which is a super, super fun class. Uh, pretty hard to teach because it's it's always in motion. There are new things to be discussed uh, sure. almost seemingly every single day. Um, but it's really the students completely engage with it. It's a fun class to teach. All right. Um, now, um, you have, uh, you've been, uh, so you've been doing this for about 20 years. So you, 
mm-hmm. like you said, you started before Facebook started. Um, mm-hmm. And we're going to pull forward a little bit in a few minutes into that. But um, when you get the students, um, what, when do they declare their major? So at what point are they in their college career when you get a hold of them? So the, when I get when, when I get my, my claws into them, uh, the youngest students the youngest students I get are first semester sophomores. So um, the journalism school we, it's very it's very liberal arts focused major, and so we like students to have a little bit of time percolating on campus before they sink into the major. Uh, so the youngest I get are uh, sophomore first semester sophomores, and then all the way up through uh, graduate students, through doctoral students. Okay, it's like the full range. Okay. Um. How did you, and I guess I should have asked this earlier when we had your bio, but um, how how did you get interested in journalism? What was the impetus for you to have that type of career path? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. So when I graduated from Dominican, um, I started out, I did two years at UW-Eau Claire and um, was I registered as a business major at my parents' insistence. And uh, the legendary family story is that um, I took a, uh, two consecutive finals um, in the, uh, it was winter of 1985. So my first semester of sophomore year, and I took an accounting final and a business statistics final. And I walked out of the ladder saying, I can't do this for the rest of my life. (laughs) And they happened to be in the building with the journalism school. And I was like, you know, that teacher at Dominican always told me I was really good at writing. So I think I'm going to go switch my major to that. And when I called my parents to tell them, my mother said, and I quote, you can't write. (laughs) So she never lived it down. She never, ever lived it down. And I, you know, it was pretty much, I had never done yearbook or the high school paper or anything like that. I'd always been a pretty voracious consumer of of journalism. So I used to read the Milwaukee Journal growing up, um, starting with the green sheet when I was a little, little kid, but then eventually landing on the news pages. And it was just always something that fascinated me. So I, I guess, you know, it was in me, but I didn't know it. Uh, and then I worked in journalism um, after college, worked for what was then Milwaukee Sentinel. Again, that's how old I was. It wasn't the Journal Sentinel back then. It was two the separate papers, Sentinel. right? Exactly. All oh, those were the days. Heady competition. Um, and uh, I worked there, and I worked at a paper in Illinois called the Kinky Daily Journal. And um, I... Uh, really loved what I did, but I did police and courts reporting. And it was very, very difficult personally, you know, a lot of emotional toll from doing that work. Mm-hmm. And I learned pretty quickly that I wasn't going to be able to sustain that. Um, I wasn't, I just, you know, it was pretty traumatic stuff that I was covering. Um, mm-hmm. And I also, you know, wanted a particular kind of personal life, a kind of work-life balance. So I was trying very hard to make a decision between going to law school and going to grad school and eventually decided that um, the partner track following law school was not going to be my cup of tea. And so I decided on um, graduate studies focused on journalism and law and it served me well. Excellent. Excellent. Um, Okay. So one of the questions that uh, I really want to cover here, um, journalism, is, according to Merriam-Webster, the collection (laughs) and editing of news for presentation through the media. Now, I love that last word, media, because that has (laughs) changed 
drastically in the time that you've been involved and been uh, in the last 25, 30 years. Um, and I always have this debate with people about how technology gives us choice, too many choices, I think. Uh, <laughs> and the information mm -hmm. moves too fast. Um, it's how do you, how do you teach your courses? I guess are, are the core, at least of what the layman, and I'm about as lay as they get, uh, <laughs> there's a core, uh, courses still teaching like the five W's and, and, and maybe I'm just being too, uh, you know, a throwback from my old high school days and a little bit of writing I did then. <laughs> but I mean, are, are there still those core principles of what journalism is and should be? You know, the five W's, get two sources, you know, all that stuff yep. you hear and read about. Is that still the core of journalism education, if you will? Well, I mean, I think what you're talking about with the five W's, the who, what, where, when, why, plus the H of how, I think that's still very much a part of journalistic practice that, you know, we're trying to relay certain things uh, to audiences. And so, and, and we use those kinds of, I guess, I would say structures to get information out to people quickly. But to me, the core of journalism is about its integrity, it's about ethics. And so, you know, these, the, the central tenets of, you know, doing our best at truth-telling, minimizing harm, being accountable to the public, being transparent, those really have not changed. Now, are they always practiced well? No, I, I will never be in the business of defending uh, shoddy or unethical journalism, which, which unfortunately we see every single day. Um, but when practiced with integrity and, and adhering to those central principles, I think journalism is absolutely essential uh, to democracy, to our power as citizens. And uh, it's in trouble now. It's in peril. The business model um, is is something that no one has worked out, particularly at the local level. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is that is of great concern to me. So in terms of how, you know, how fundamentally different my teaching is today from when I was, say, a grad student teaching assistant back in 1991, the first time I ever taught the journalism course. Uh, no, I don't think the core is terrifically different. I think we do a lot more talking about how journalism should defend that, that those inner lines, um, you know, there are public communicators with vast resources that they, that, you know, didn't exist back in the 90s, uh, early 90s in particular. And there's more There's more competition for attention. There's more competition for power. And I, I think I think people who are trying to do neutral, port, neutral reporting with integrity are under more siege now than ever before. So I talk with my students more about what that means, about how you try to continue to do your work with honesty and integrity when some people are trying to undermine that work. So, so, yeah, so the core basis is still there. That's good. That's good to know. And, and I am not a ravenous consumer of news. So, um, I, I'm not a good cross section because I think what I suffer from, and I think a lot of people do to a certain degree is news overload. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're of a generation that you had three choices growing up if you wanted to watch television news. We were fortunate enough growing up that we had two newspapers in our town. Uh, so you had at least an option. 
um, back then. Um, now, good God, <laughs> <laughs> the overload <laughs> is yeah, just tremendous. The overload is intense. When one of the things um, I think people often miss is that, you know, back in those, again, I don't want the past, but I don't want to be misinterpreted as making the past to help to be this, you know, these great halcyon days where everything was excellent. There was a lot that was wrong with journalism mm-hmm. as we were growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whole whole sets of people were excluded from, from coverage. Um, but one of the things that I think people don't see is that when we were growing up, or certainly my parents' generation, news was a time of day kind of affair. So if you subscribe to the Sentinel, it arrived on your doorstep somewhere between six and seven in the morning. You got up, you read it with your morning coffee, your breakfast. Maybe you took it if you, you know, commuted by bus, um, and you read it then. You subscribe to the journal. You got home from work, you read it before you made dinner, and uh, and off you went. If you watched Walter Cronkite, you sat down in Milwaukee from 5.30 to 6 p.m., and then maybe you followed on with, um, with one of the local affiliates. You turned to WTMJ Channel 4. And that was news in your life. <laughs> that was... Right. Uh, that that it was relegated to times of day, and, and it was pretty easy to maintain that diet. Now, I mean, you know, starting starting in the '90s um, with the advent of cable TV, then the uptick of talk radio, which I, I want to segment out not as news but still as um, as media that engage with news. It's everywhere. It's all the time. And then now that we, you know, carry around these supercomputers in our pockets and to the extent we allow them to alert us, we get these physical sensations that there's news here to be consumed. And it can give people this tremendous sense of, of overload, of fatigue. Uh, you know, the, the pandemic is a good example. Like, is there a part of your day where you are taking care to get away from news and information about this? And, you know, let's say you engage with social media. You really want to go see, you know, your high school buddies brand do that but while you're there you're at home uh, with other with news and other information. So we never really are free of it now. And I think that's what contributes to that sense of overload and fatigue. Uh, true, true. And 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 now as part of the journalism course, do you teach is is part of that also um the business of news? I mean, do you teach kind of the business aspect of that or does that not get into the journalism school or? We do. We certainly do teach the business of news. We talk quite a bit about media economics, about how that affects coverage. Um, you know, nobody is going to come out of not just our J school, but any J school ready to, you know, be a publisher and run the books. Um, but talking about social impact of the business of news is certainly something that's important for our students. Okay. Because again, as, as a lay consumer of news and trying to, and again, not a ton of it, um, I, I, you know, clickbait, the soundbite, um, <laughs> has it 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 want it, it, it needs to grab attention and it needs to pull you in and i think with the and you can correct me if i'm wrong but what i see is that we have such an overload that we pick those things up a lot easier because they're tailored toward quick hit boom here it is and and then that's what we accept as news or that's what we accept is is that a growing problem do you see and and in in the industry in the industry 
I think uh, I think that the fact that things are so measurable now is an ethics issue for anyone in journalism. So, you know, I, I like to point people to, we're always going to need the entertaining content. There's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to read a story about uh, Kim Kardashian. Sure. Gosh, I wish people didn't want to, but they do, that's fine. You know, that's entertaining for them. But, you know, we're not... We are not made of heavy stories alone. We want to have the kind of lighthearted engagement. Like if you look at, um, you know, uh, John Krasinski and uh, some good news, yes, <laughs> like yeah. YouTube shows that he's doing, we all need that. And there's no problem with that. Um, as long as you're balancing it, that you're balancing your news and information diet overall. I, I like to tell my own kids, like, Fine. <laughs> the, uh, you know, if super funny uh, videos, you know, the, like crazy GoPro videos that you're watching, if that is your creme brulee, please be sure you're also having, you know, a solid three ounce piece of protein about what's happening in your community. And you might have some, some Brussels sprouts about, you know, some right. like maybe economic news that you don't care about. So as long as you're balancing that diet overall, I think you're okay. And I also think that matters when it comes to what sources we pay attention to. Um, you know, we as consumers of news have so much more power now um, to go after whatever information we choose. So, you know, my mom, <laughs> little footnote here, I worked for the Sentinel. My parents refused to subscribe to it. They stayed journal, <laughs> <laughs> journal subscribers to the day they died. <laughs> uh, but, you know, she, she got the journal, and so she was getting the menu that the journal editors presented her, right? You know, so it was the it was the menu that the chef had, had constructed for her. Right. If she were alive today, she would have much more power to go after only sources that reinforce her worldview. And that's something that I think that's a responsibility that we all have as consumers. I, I tell my students, you know, look, whatever your worldview on politics or any social issue, do yourself a favor and at least once a week, preferably once a day, hit up a source that would confront those views. Hit up a source that may offer you a different perspective. So with my uh, Chrome web browser, for instance, I set its homepage to different sources routinely. I just change it a couple of times a week so that I'm not always seeing the same source over and over and over again. And I think that balance, it, so news media have a responsibility to provide balance. But we as consumers, as citizens in charge of our, of our lives, we have a responsibility to balance in what we consume as well. You know, it's it's uh, well, it's funny you bring up the newspaper thing, but you know, in our household, um, the radio never got turned off from the mm -hmm. time my mother got up in the morning to the time she went to bed, and longer if there was a ball game on uh, in the <laughs> evening. You know that that the the radio was on; it was mm -hmm. nonstop, and I mean, it took probably my mother had MS, and so it took until she got to the point where she had difficulty moving before we had a TV in the kitchen, which was, mm. oh, probably early 80s, 82, 83, 84, maybe, before there was a tele, it was, the radio was on. So that was ours, that was my source of news. Um, that, and again. We didn't have a, 
We didn't have a television in the kitchen until the Brewers went to the World Series. <laughs> 1982. <yeah. laughs> and, then my mother, and then my mother made apple pie and watched baseball. <laughs> Um, but you know, that was, that was my main source of news. And again, it was, it was a time of day you had, um, you know, you're not even a morning news show at that time. Like it is now it was, you had your, your at the top of the hour, and the bottom of the hour, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, a definite at a definite news that was followed by a certain editorial thought process. Um, if you will, um, you know, you had, cause at, you know, growing up we had WTMJ, we had WISN, two very different editorial themes on e- whichever one you were listening to. Um, mm-hmm. so I think that's, that's kind of, that's what I remember at least growing up and, and it didn't seem like we had, like I said, we had choices, but man, it, it didn't seem like a lot went on. I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> well, it's an interesting point. That in the time frame you're talking about, um, radio itself was different. That, that's, you know, the, the um, Federal Communications Commission Fairness Doctrine applied at that time. And then while you and I were in college and beyond, it, it no longer applied. Um, and that fundamentally changed what radio was like. But or some, or the, I should say not radio was like, but the content on radio. And I'm not sure. I was pretty slow to recognize that change. I didn't, I didn't see it as a fundamental shift, but it really was a fundamental shift and sort of changed the way uh, people, changed what people got from that medium. And if you were used to having it on all day, every day, in your kitchen or in your car, wherever, uh, Unless you were listening to music, if you were listening to news and talk, uh, what you got changed. And you were getting um, much more pointed um, commentary and you're getting less news. Right. Yeah, that was um, that was about the time I quit listening to the radio, too, then. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing I, I'm, I'm interested in here too, that, uh, and I know we've got limited time, so I apologize if I'm rushing through some points. Um, no, that's right. um, your, you helped develop a curriculum for the future of journalism without knowing what the future of journalism was going to be. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pretty so, intimidating, right? Yeah, I, 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 I read that and I was like, "How the hell did you have a, did you have a crystal ball, or, or did you, or, or basically, did you just boil it down to the essence and teach the essence and then adapt as these things popped up? I mean, how do you, how did you work that? How did you, what was your, what were you tasked with, and how did you get it done? Yeah, I, I am not joking when I say that when I started my first day. The chair of our department said, okay, so what we'd like you to do is train students for jobs that do not yet exist. <laughs> but okay, great. Yeah, no that problem. Sounds, that sounds really, really easy. <laughs> I'm very, very excited for this for simple task. Uh, but one of the things I realized then, um, and I think this is definitely still true today, is that the education that I got in the journalism school at Wisconsin um, helped me adapt tremendously over my career. So I did work for a in journalism that came to grad school. Uh, but then I was super interested in um, 
and digital technologies, none of us called them that. And it was, you know, the the information superhighway yes. <laughs> was the buzzword. But I got very interested in coding and site development. And so I left. I worked in marketing um, for three years and helped develop uh, sites for um, UW Health doctors to engage patients and for patients to get information. And I learned so much from that. Now, had I ever been formally trained in marketing communications in school? Nope. I was super solid print journalism. Um, but I found that the skills I had been given or the skills that they helped hone in me were all about gathering information, deciding what's important, communicating that quickly and effectively. And those helped me as much marketing as they did in journalism. So when I came back with this curriculum, I thought the faculty had very smartly embraced the idea that, um, one, these technologies are going to change the world in unpredictable ways. And given that we couldn't predict them, we couldn't plan for them. So let's build something that, um, that you know, can change quickly. Let's make, let's make it a nimble curriculum. And the second thing was, let's not invest too much faith that a 19-year-old knows exactly what she wants to do for the rest of her life. <laughs> let's build a curriculum that gives her a set of skills that make her adaptable over time. And while we're at it, let's give her a growth mindset. This idea that, okay, I, I am who I am now, but I can go where I need to go. Um, one of my colleagues quotes um, Wayne Gretzky, um, the famous, his famous line, you don't, you don't skate to where the puck is, you skate to where the puck is going. And you know, that's really sort of the underpinning of this curriculum. And so I kind of, kind of tried to keep that in mind as I built this foundational course, this bootcamp course, course that I now teach. But, you know, we're never going to be able to give them everything. <laughs> you can't, like, you can't, nobody can teach anybody everything. But you can give them a set of foundational skills and concepts and this growth mindset that then they can take it in whatever direction they want to go. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, I look at um, stuff on the web and it's still written word. For the most part, yeah. Uh, <laughs> even a video, even a video is written. Right? written. So you know, Char Charlie Charlie Barons and managed document. Charlie is one of my grads, by the way. He's writing. He's using he's using he's from the skills as a writer. So with the development of of the with developing a course for jobs that did not exist yet, I guess what was the most uh, what was what threw you for the biggest loop in in developing the course? What was the most unexpected thing that happened or? that uh, you weren't quite prepared for? Uh, yeah, that's an easy answer. <laughs> the answer is um, student resistance. Uh, and in some, it, aided and abetted, I would say, in part by their parents. So, you know, the kids back in 2000 were used to the way the world was working at that point. They were used to a very siloed curriculum where you chose journalism or advertising or public relations. You dug into whether you were going to work in print or broadcast. And we wiped all that out and said, nope, you're going to learn about everything in this foundational course. And then from there, you'll go on and specialize a little bit. Um, but you're, you're, we're going to try to make you as adaptable as you can be. And some of them were just hella resistant to that. They just wanted no part of it. <laughs> I tell this story about this fantastic student, uh, Katie Harbath. She's a wonderful, wonderful kid. And she was in my very first semester of that foundational course. And 
All she wanted to be was a print newspaper designer. If she could have gone on to design the front page of the Chicago Tribune, that would be her dream come true. That's <laughs> all she wanted to be. Um, and I said, okay, that's great. And you already have a lot of skills in that regard. Uh, but I think I'm, I really think you have leadership um, potential. And I'd like you to be the webmaster for our final project in this class. And she's like, what? I said, I have no interest in code. I don't want to work in digital anything. Um, I, this is crazy. I have, I don't care about websites. I want no part of this. I want to be a print designer. And I said, well, that's okay, but you're going to do this. Like, I would really, really like you to do this. And she said, well, do I have to? And I said, well, you can say no, but you're not going to say no. You're going to say yes. And she eventually ended up as the webmaster on that project and then has gone on to a phenomenal career in digital technology. She is now an executive at Facebook. And every time I see her, we laugh about that resistance that I refuse to do this, uh, but it ultimately ended up serving her pretty darn well. So when you started, uh, were people still typesetting? Or uh, was... not on when I started, we were, it was, it, we weren't yet direct to plate. So type, typesetting was in plate construction, but not, it wasn't, it wasn't hot copy. Like it wasn't the kind that you would like print out and paste up on a page. Right. Um, we were, we were, we were doing, so you're using Pork Express, which has sure. now largely been replaced by Adobe InDesign. Um, so they were doing computer design. So it was. Okay digital in in some regards um but not you know there was still a, a big sort of you know adherence to print and you know we still see that by the way there are still like students in our magazine class are more excited about the print version of their magazine than they are about the, the online version of their magazine there's something they just still like to hold that in their hands well there's something to be said about the feel of a page um mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give people that so um The, uh, what, uh, in, in, in the same breath here, I guess, um, as far as challenges, what was the biggest boon for you, um, with technology as far as teaching your course or showing students, what was the, uh, what was the one thing that came down the pike that you just said, oh my God, it's about time or thank God we have this now or something. <laughs> <laughs> there's, been, there's been a lot of that actually. There've been a lot of like, oh, this is new development I can I can take in a new direction. I think in terms of teaching an intro course, I would say the development of um, you know WordPress and more plug and play web design tools. I spent a lot of time teaching them hand coding in the early days and then HTML editors like Dreamweaver. And when those went away, you can, there's there's still a funny kind of divide, like a north-south divide for my students who had to learn Dreamweaver and those who never did. <laughs> you know, the kids are like, oh, well, back in my day, yes. I had to walk two miles, two miles to school in the snow, uphill both ways. Yes. <laughs> you and your WordPress, you get, you get off easy. So those kinds of tools where you can spend less time teaching the technology and more time teaching the concepts and the ethics that I think that's been a big game for us. Excellent. Excellent. Um, now one thing I'm always curious about, um, and I'm, and, and I fall into this category, um, again, with the, I'll call it the oversaturation of media that's available for people to consume, not, not just news. Um, but being a podcaster, and not, not a terribly prolific one, but something I enjoy doing because, uh, it, it actually, it helps me connect with people personally. It's nice to have a chance to chat with you and catch up a little bit. And, uh, but then, uh, I'm, I'm also kind of a curious nature where, um, 
I'd like to hear from people who are the experts. Um, so am I, as a podcaster with no, no formal training um, in journalism and, and, and sometimes not even great speaking skills, um, am I part of – do I have an ethical obligation? Uh, how, how do mainstream journalists – view the the average guy who is literally sitting in his basement has enough money to buy some equipment and and pay his subscription fee to get his podcast out there how are we viewed and and do we have the same journalistic obligations well you've got a lot of questions baked into that one i know i know i i'm sorry yeah so i would say i would say that um people like you are um are viewed in a number of different ways so i think a lot of journalists view um, sort of independent people who are uh, people who are not um, in line with any or not working for any news organization. I think they see them as an important part of the information environment. And to the extent that they are doing their work um, with integrity, I think they see them as an important part of that information environment. To the extent that an independent podcaster is throwing out, you know, mis or disinformation is having, you know, it's just blasting unfounded opinion who is um, contributing to our divides or the, you know, the divisiveness mm -hmm. that exists in the society. I, I think pe those people are viewed with some skepticism as, you know, well, gosh, how do we counteract that if we're trying to promote verified information that's useful to members of our community in their decision-making? Well, now this guy is coming down the pike and getting in the way of that. And, and so viewed with, I guess, I guess distrust is a fair word. Um, I like to, to the second part of your question, you know, what are your obligations? I really like to say journalism ethics ain't just for journalists anymore. Um, you know, public communicators have, even if they would never paint themselves as journalists, have tremendous power in this society. And with that power comes responsibility. You have every right in the world. Um, you can exercise your First Amendment right to do, um, to you know, to put this podcast out there, but I would argue you also have obligations. You have responsibilities that go along with those rights. And I think sometimes we lose sight of those responsibilities when we focus too much on the rights. You know, we have these epic battles about free expression. It's like, well, what's responsible expression actually look like? So, you know, let's say you brought me on to talk about the pandemic. I said in the podcast, I think we have a shared responsibility not to put out misinformation about vaccination. It's like we have this, we have an obligation to the people that listen to us here. I don't think we talk about that enough. I don't think we talk about those obligations to truth-telling, to minimizing harm, to accountability. It's like, you know, do I think you're a journalist? I guess I've never really cared that much about that label. Like, you know, fine. If you want to, if that's what you want to do and you're, and you're um, trying to report verified information um, with some sense of ethics, great. I'll, I'll consider you a journalist. But if you don't want that label, that doesn't mean you're freed of those responsibilities. So getting uh, kind of on the tail end of that, um, how do you feel to me? Uh, and we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, a lot of news is not the gathering of facts and 
trying to express those to people. But a lot of news has become borderline entertainment. And to me, I think that does a disservice to the word journalist. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of people who are on news channels, um, whether it's radio, you know, podcasting, cable, that are entertainers, that they don't care what they're reading um, as much as coming off good or looking good or bringing in the ratings or bringing in the advertising dollars. Um mm -hmm. And that, I, th I think that's where a lot of, a lot of the, me personally, that's where I have the divide with news right now is I, I think I'm smart enough to tell the difference between what's entertainment and what's editorial and what's news. But that line gets so blurred these days and some people mm -hmm. can't tell the difference. I, I don't know if that's a truth. Yeah. If you, how do you feel about that or? Yeah, I think, so again, I'm going to come back to not just the responsibility of the communicator but the responsibility of the recipient of the communication and and i don't want to lose sight of either so you know some people really love arguments they really love to hear strongly argued positions especially those that reinforce their worldview i for one can't stand it i cannot, stand, I cannot watch I don't care what the issue is and what my political feeling on that issue is. I cannot watch any cable channel after six o'clock at night. I, six o'clock at night. I just can't do it. I yeah. hate it. I have, I have never liked arguments my entire life. <laughs> and it's just not something that I like. But one of my dearest friends in the world loves it. She just loves to hear argument that's very entertaining to her. Uh, she, she is, I think, a really solid consumer in that she, she, um, takes an argument across political spectrum. She doesn't adhere to just one uh, channel at eight o'clock on Wednesday night. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that is entertaining to her. And that's fine. We can both exist in this information ecology. Where we have a problem is when either one of us takes what we prefer and goes only to that which reinforces our pre-existing views. So whatever your view is, you should be open to challenges on that. So for instance, you know, owing to our uh, days back at Dominican High School, I am deeply, deeply opposed to the death penalty, deeply opposed to it. And that presented a problem when I was a journalist. I was a reporter in a state, Illinois, that at the time had, a death, had the death penalty. And I had to work very, very hard as a journalist to not let my personal moral view affect my coverage of any given case where the death penalty was on the table or that issue overall, you know, whether the state should have it or not. Was it administered in a fair way or not? I had to be constantly vigilant about how my view could be infecting my coverage. It's the same thing today. If I I should be challenged. I should I should seek out content that makes arguments about whether we should have the death penalty. Does it actually provide a deterrent value? Are there some crimes in which it is something that the state should carry out? Um, it's you know a, a long held view, something that is a, is a really a moral issue for me. But I should still take in counter argument. And any time we slip into that very very comfortable habit. Only reinforcing what we already think. We're in trouble. Very true. Very, very true. Well, I know we're we're running a little short on time, and I know you have another meeting to go to. So uh, I want to say thank you. Um, did we leave anything out? Do, I, do you need to? Did, you, did I leave you unspoken on something that I need to? <laughs> no, this was this 
fun. I feel like I feel like we can talk for hours. Oh well, we could, <laughs> we could, yeah. Yeah, and I, I really, I really like the format that you're doing here. This sort of, you know, uh, not dipping down into the into the partisan divides, but just thinking about issues that that we can, we should all engage with. I really, it's it's really great service you're doing. Oh well, thank you, and I appreciate that. I uh, hopefully it's hopefully the quality's there. That's the main thing. I have, uh, um, but uh, I know you've got some place to be. And I, yeah, well, I have to be, I have to be in the video meeting, which is the place we all seem to be. Today. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sitting in front of our computer, That's... trying our, trying our best to make a human connection. Yeah. So I appreciate your time. Uh, I'm just going to ask you to hold on for two seconds while I run my outro and, uh, okay. but I appreciate it. So, uh, Kathleen, thank you so much. Um, uh, Good luck at UW, uh, which I'm guessing you'll be a fixture at. One day there'll be a building named after you, I'm sure, right? <laughs> well, not if I don't not if I don't find enough money to fund one. <laughs> oh, still gotta pay for play, huh? Okay. Um, exactly. <laughs> well, thanks again for your time. I appreciate that uh you taking the time this afternoon and doing this. So uh take care. Thanks, Steve. It was really it was a really great time. Thank you. This has been the Listen Up Milwaukee podcast, brought to you by Testadoro Media, LLC. You can reach us by email at listenupmke at yahoo.com or through our website, listenupmke.podbean.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at listenupmke. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave a positive review. Opening and closing music is courtesy of John C. and taken from his album Shine, available where music is sold.